Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to another Wednesday evening with the Clear Mountain Monastery community. This evening, it's my deep joy to introduce and to have Dr. James R. Hillard on the on the episode. So welcome, Dr. Hillard. Oh, thank you, Venerable Anjan Kovila. <laughs> so in addition to being a, a physician, a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Hillard is also my dad. So... Um, yeah, I prefer to call him Kothi, actually, because nothing can make you old, feel older than having a son who's venerable. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> please go ahead. That's right. You and mom are the only people who call me Kothi. Um, oh, I guess Nat and Elena do as well. But um, I'm going to read your biography. Mm. Um, so Dr. Hillard is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He has been professor of psychiatry at MSU uh, CMU and the University of Cincinnati. He attended University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for undergrad and Stanford for medical school. At University of Cincinnati, he was chair of the Department of Psychiatry for 18 years. At Michigan State University, he was associate provost for human health. He has published two books and over 100 papers on a wide range of psychiatric topics. He survived metastatic stomach cancer, diagnosed in 2010, and is one of 100 Stories of Hope for the 110th Anniversary of the American Cancer Society. He combines kindness and a sense of humor with wide-ranging medical expertise. And as I mentioned, you're my dad. So welcome oh, onto the show. Right. And of course, being your dad is what I'm proudest of. Wow. Although well, pride's not a good Buddhist thing, is it? Um, no, I think we'll get to that. So. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, there is a wholesome sense of wholesome sense of pride, which I think we'll touch on um, via a cartoon. So um, Dr. Hillard, and maybe I'll, I'll just call you Dr. Hillard for the rest of the episode, if that's okay. No, it's okay, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Hillard had the idea to show these cartoons, actually, which um, growing up, he would read me cartoons um, just as a fun thing to do on the weekends. And maybe about three years ago, he suggested that I start drawing cartoons of he and I. So uh, with that in mind, I created this um, cartoon series called Psychastic, The Charming Adventures of an Atheo Psychiatrist Father and His Budo Monastic Son. So that's us. That's us. Yep. You're on the right and I'm there on the left. So... And I thought maybe to introduce things and to go into this object, maybe of wholesome pride, like you suggested, uh, this is one particular cartoon. So maybe we can try to read this. Um, okay. So this is me talking at the beginning. Oh, Dad, before I forget, I wanted to share a neat contemplative practice I've learned. Basically, the idea is to think of three things you've done in your life that you're most wholesomely proud of. Once you've got them, then the next step is to recollect them often so as to counter feelings of self-criticism and to nurture real joy. Just hearing about this practice, does anything come to mind for you? Yeah, that's a profound question. So I want to think about it a little rather than just say some random sarcastic junk. That's a good idea. Okay, then you're thinking and thinking again. But then I have an idea. Oh, I've got a good one for you. How about that time you did your part to get me birthed 
and then housed and then clothed and fed and schooled for 18 years or so. I, for one, think that was pretty awesome. Hmm. No, that wouldn't be fair. Then I'd have to put your brother and sister on the list, and there'd be no place for when I beat Zelda on Nintendo. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Point taken. Um, so that's just one example of the um, maybe two dozen or so cartoons that we have in the Monk and Dad series, um, which are published. That website is actually one which Ajahn Nisibo created um, called The Fourth Messenger, which is an outlet for monastics to have a creative impulse. So, mm. so what do you think about that question? I mean, um, I was reading your accolades. Um, but yeah, looking back, you've been a, a psychiatrist now for coming on 50 years. Um, what do you look back on with that wholesome sense of, of pride? Well, okay, well, there is uh, you and your siblings, and there is Zelda, and then I did just make it to 1100 days on Duolingo, um, but I guess that was just some more of that sarcastic junk. Uh, I really do think that I've done more good than harm being a psychiatrist, hmm. and uh, I do, I've also spent a lot of my career teaching and I think I've really taught um, uh, a lot of other psychiatrists uh, how to uh, how to be more helpful than harmful. Mm. In fact, one of the things I try to do is teach people that treat your patients like they are sane and treat doctors like they're insane, and that almost always works. Mm. <laughs> well that that reminds me of um, when I was young, probably you know, elementary school, you gave me a piece of advice that you said, uh, when you're thinking about what profession you want to be, when you're thinking about what you want to be when you grow up, you should look at the people who are in that profession and see, do I want to be like that person? Um, mm -hmm. So I thought that was great advice. And um, that really did influence my decision to become a monk meeting um, great teachers, um, Ajahn Pasano, Ajahn Amaro, um, who I ended up ordaining with, and just my you know, brother monks as well are just great examples. What, what was it that made you want to go into psychiatry? What was, um, what was that impulse? Yeah, well, I was originally planning to go into psychology and that was because I was a narcissistic asshole, and I thought nothing was more fascinating than my own brain. <laughs> then uh, your mom was going to medical school, and I just said, well, okay, so I'll do psychiatry rather than psychology. So I did all the pre-med courses in one year. <laughs> and I think it was the right choice uh, for me anyway. Okay. Um, did you did you have any mentors? Were there any psychiatrists in the in the department where you were studying that, or in the university where you were studying that, really were inspiring examples of of good people? Well, I would say that I've only had two mentors in my career, both of them when I was at University of Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and so one of those was Marshall Ginsberg, who was uh, like my boss. Uh, for the first few years I was there, and then I was his boss. 
and um, uh, he really cared about um, uh, people with the psychiatric illness. He's older than I was, and so when he went into it, there were not very many effective treatments. And so I asked him one time, well, wow, there were so few effective treatments. Why did you even go into this? And he said, well, because the need was so great. And uh, so that was inspirational. And uh, the other was actually uh, like uh, an internal medicine doctor. He was dean of medicine most of the time I was in uh, Cincinnati. He was my boss. And um, uh, unlike most physicians, he was not, you know, a major narcissist. And he was a little bit on the Asperger's side which, by the way, is no longer a diagnosis. I changed that to autism spectrum. Yeah, so you've mentioned narcissism a couple times, and I think, yeah. you know, when you sit down to meditate, um, I, you know, one of the first things that you notice is all of your conceit. And, you know, I think any meditator is well, might be the first to tell you how narcissistic they are. But um, you talk about how, the reason you were thinking about psychology was that um, you know your own mind is the most interesting thing. But one of the one of the reasons, one of the things that I love about our conversations, I mean, not the live ones like this, but when we're just talking on the weekends, or um, is that when you talk about the mind, I mean, you've been studying the mind both in an academic and intellectual, you know, uh, professional yeah. setting, but also just being with your own mind and the insights that you've had into other people's minds, they extrapolate. So when you talk about uh, your patients or different medical conditions, um, mm -hmm. the autism spectrum or narcissism or any other anxiety, depression, all of these really do have their, their correlates in a Buddhist uh, expression yeah. of things just because mm -hmm. they're states of the mind. So um, I find that, that fascinating just how mm -hmm. insights from one field, you're Western approach really do uh, mirror quite well with the Buddhist approach. Right. And uh, I've learned a lot from you also. Hmm. Well, maybe we could go more into, um, yeah, the autism, autism spectrum. I mean, you brought that up. Um, mm -hmm. uh, could you say more about how you feel that um, dropping the um, what, what now it's called the autism spectrum, but it used to be called Asperger's. Um, yeah. Could you say any more about that? Because I don't know this for certain, but it might be the case that a monastery or a meditation center is somewhat self-selecting for um, yeah, people who are somewhat on the spectrum. Um, we also have, you know, um, social geniuses, I'd say like Ajahn Nisibo, but um, yeah, please. Yeah. And um, yeah, it may be best, you know, to have somebody who's a social genius uh, sharing a monastery with somebody's little Aspie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and again, I don't know. Um, in general, I mean, some of our psychiatric diagnoses make sense and some of them don't make as much sense. And uh, sometimes, you know, when people ask, do you think I'm autistic? I say, well, no, you're just a weirdo. 
<laughs> and so that's one end of the spectrum. And then those guys on Big Bang Theory are sort of the other end of the Asperger's spectrum. The people who are really autistic and nonverbal, I don't think, are really on the same spectrum. Hmm. Do you, so you have mentioned um, both on, for your present job, working at health, uh, health stance, or life stance, excuse me, um, you mentioned that one of your specialties is mindfulness, or one of your interventions is mindfulness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think mindfulness would be an appropriate um, suggestion for someone on the, the spectrum, or is there any... Yeah, I think it's really good for practically anybody that, uh, you know, psychotherapy goes through, like, uh, you know, sort of trendiness. And actually, one of the flavors of the month lately is uh, mindfulness therapy. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I think one of the reasons, you'll probably agree with this, one of the reasons people are miserable is clinging attachment. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who are depressed uh, or anxious, it's because uh, somehow they don't feel like they're living up to something that they're supposed to have lived up to. And they lose track of what's happening in their lives now, what's happening in the world around them, while they're still clinging to what they think they should be like. Hmm. And so I think that is what I think about is mindfulness. And I think that probably is similar to what you think too. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's straight from the Buddhist texts and my own experience, this uh, idea that mindfulness is good all the time. There's a, a set of teachings called the seven enlightenment factors, some of which are stimulating and some of which are um, relaxing. So you've got on the stimulating side, you've got joy and analysis of dhammas and uh, energy. And on the relaxing side, you've got tranquility, concentration, equanimity. But mindfulness is said in that discourse and, and elsewhere mm -hmm. that mindfulness is always helpful. It's like the fulcrum that you can balance these other, um, yeah, more, uh, more vectored, more um, weighted mind states. So mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely... I definitely agree with that. And um, one thing which is interesting about our conversations is that we have different vocabularies. Yes. Um, well, I'm speaking, I know I've been studying Pali and reference Theravada suttas uh, quite often and have basically a, a Buddhist hybrid English vocabulary that I use. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned clinging attachment. Is that something you speak about in psychiatric or... Um, psychology circles or is that something you've picked up from buddhism yeah that's what i got from you actually hmm. and uh i i use that with patients also and i look i'm not trying to convert you to buddhism uh in fact one of the great things about buddhism i don't i mean kobe you don't try to convert people <laughs> either do you it's true it's true yeah and so uh, uh, yeah, I guess I talk about it sometimes, too, is neglecting, uh, like, reality in favor of, uh, you know, your fantasies about what reality ought to be. And mm. that's kind of similar, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's what 
what we cling to. Um, how about the term mindfulness? I mean, this is, um, you know, it is, you know, as you say, somewhat a flavor of the, the month, but it's been a lot longer than a month since, you know, there have been, you know, thousands of, you know, by now there's probably tens of thousands of scientific articles on, on mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. this enough in the mainstream that you can recommend mindfulness or even teach mindfulness exercises to your patients? Uh, well, yes, definitely to recommend. I'm not sure I'm quite narcissistic enough to say that I can really teach it. Hmm. But um, what I do suggest uh, with people is they do start the day just trying to clear out all the trash that's accumulated in their mind hmm. and really get in touch with uh, their body and really to let thoughts come in and then let go of them. Hmm. And so I think that's actually something I kind of learned from you. Hmm. And uh, the only meditation technique uh, that I l really encourage people to do is to breathe in and think and then breathe out. And so it's accept, let go, accept let go hmm. and uh, that's a very therapeutic message for practically everybody hmm. the fact that you would bring people back into their bodies i mean this is um yeah the go-to in in monasteries when someone is starting to you know display symptoms that are outside of you know normal limits whatever those yeah. are if someone's mm -hmm. you know starting to maybe mention you know talk about seeing things which other people don't see if people are yeah. starting to get depressed if they've got a lot of anxiety um all sorts of things which people come to to you for uh, when they get over a certain limit but what we recommend for these people who are just only starting to exhibit these um these qualities is just come back to the body you know i know you want to meditate a lot because that's how Buddhism is is framed in the West as you know meditation or bust, yeah. uh, but really, you know, suggesting that people, young monastics or people staying in monasteries, really get back into their bodies. You know, chop wood. Um, you know, very embodied things. Um, I'm glad to hear that. Is that common in the psychiatric circles that you um, were educated in, or is that? Well, no. I mean. Uh, practically everything I was taught in residency, I now regard as stupid. <laughs> yeah. That, you know, uh, I, we had a very psychoanalytic framework in my residency. And I now regard that as just what? Hmm. Okay. And uh, on the other hand, the positive aspects of it are really listening to your patients. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a cartoon I've got in my office now, uh, which is kind of a joke, but not completely, is the psychiatrist saying, handing a prescription saying, I medicate first and ask questions later. <laughs> and it is one of the things that's happened during my career is that, 
you know, as we've gotten more effective medications, which are way better than what we had when I was in residency, that has gotten to be the major thing that psychiatrists do. And most of the psychotherapy gets done by psychologists or uh, like psychiatric social workers. And uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, one of the uh, one of the things I think about, if you want to be a psychotherapist, you have to have the courage to every once in a while say something that's totally stupid and banal. Mm. And one of the ones I occasionally use is if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm. And it worries me a little bit that, you know, there is so much to learn about medication and psychobiology and neuroscience now that a lot of psychiatrists being trained now don't really learn very much about um, psychotherapy or mindfulness. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so anyway, in terms of teaching people, I try to help them understand the difference between what are things that really are brain disorders. And, uh, you know, bipolar disorder is that. Uh, schizophrenia is that, major depression disorder is that, and people who try to bypass really getting, you know, who really are suffering from those and try to bypass that and go directly to uh, meditation, uh, often uh, that can make things worse mm -hmm. in the short run, particularly people who are psychotic. And uh, really what I think about psychotic is not being able to tell the difference between what's going on inside your head and what's going on outside your head. Hmm. And so, you know, I try not to overuse medication, but I try not to underutilize it either. And so many people fall into thinking, if I'm a good enough person, if I meditate enough, that will cure whatever is wrong with me. And that doesn't work for major physical illnesses, and it doesn't work for major psychiatric illnesses either, or so I believe. Yeah, um, no, there's a lot there. And I mean, you're mentioning that uh, these days, modern psychiatry really leans perhaps a bit too heavily into um, psychopharmacology, yes. basically, um, prescribing medication. There is also, especially perhaps in the forest tradition of, of Buddhism, um, you know, a certain uh, cohort of people who are really anti-medication and do, as you're saying, yeah. um, think, oh, I can solve it all by meditation. If I just, you know, meditate more, then I can get these, these thoughts, these um, visions under control. And um, just to say that, you know, I have had teachers who I respect, who have actually recommended to um, students of theirs, both lay people and monastics to, um, yeah, actually look into uh, pharmacological solutions. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, somebody I think about in this regard, um, I haven't actually read all of it, but um, Ajahn Chah suffered from diabetes. Mm. And, uh, you know, he did get that treated. He did eat after noon, I think, uh, because otherwise his blood sugar would crash. And uh, again, I really think that um, 
you know, for severe and persistent mental illness, it is a lot like diabetes. Hmm. And you can't make diabetes go away. Even Ajahn Chah couldn't make diabetes go away. Hmm. And I don't think people can just make um, major mental illness go away. There are a lot of people, though, who suffer a lot. Uh, and uh, something I treat a lot lately is what's called bipolar. I'm uh, not bipolar. Um, borderline personality disorder. I don't like that name. What's it, what it's called in Europe is um, emotionally unstable personality. Hmm. And the way I think about that is the symptoms of it are really uh, overattachment to people and desperate attempts to avoid abandonment, uh, having an unstable sense of self, tending to do impulsive and often self-destructive things. And uh, I don't, and again, you know, for, you know, a lot of people who have this do develop depression and anxiety on top of it. But I do kind of think that people are born, you know, either relatively sensitive or less sensitive. And if you're born sensitive, then you just grow up to be a nice, sensitive person if you have a good uh, growing up environment. <laughs> But if you have a bad growing up environment and you start out as a sensitive person, then that gives you these borderline uh, traits. Hmm. And uh, so I feel like that's one where we really are just treating the symptoms. And I think that's one, too, where mindfulness is really uh, a cure, whereas what I'm doing with the medication is just a band-aid mm. for somebody with schizophrenia who is having you know hallucinations and delusions all the time uh you know that's something that really is not going to get better and in fact it may get worse mm. with medica with meditation meditation yeah so one thing you mentioned there is um this idea of people having an unsettled sense of self yeah so one of the things that uh, we do in, in Buddhist meditation is actually intentionally unsettling question the sense of self. Um, how would you caution? And for someone who's you know, psychologically well-adjusted, um, it's a fascinating exercise to look mm -hmm. for, you know, where is the center? Where is the center of this thing I call a self? What is the essence of it? Um, but for, you know, someone who is, has this dissociative or personality disorder. Um, yeah, I can imagine it would be quite traumatic. And even, um, I'm curious if you've met people who've had meditation induced um, psychosis or meditation induced um, psychological problems at all, or if it's that's still too new a thing in America. Well, no, it's rare, but I have seen it. And so for people who are deeply troubled, they're hearing voices outside their head uh, talking about everything they do and uh, generally saying derogatory things about them then uh, going deep inside uh, really uh, uh, can make the hallucinations seem more real mm. and it is as i say it is rare but um 
I have seen it. And I think if people are already like uh, having hallucinations or like believing that, uh, uh, I don't know, the devil is at work in the world, uh, you know, these are people who probably should get psychiatric treatment before they start uh, heavy duty meditation. Mm. You know, something you told me about one time, the first time you did Vipassana, mm -hmm. was after doing it for a while, your uh, teacher said, and now after being inside for a while, you realize that you're insane. Hmm. Do you remember telling me that? Um, I don't remember that, but I, I think I have said things like that, you know, and mm -hmm. I mean, of course, it's not a clinical, I wasn't speaking about, you know, clinical insanity on any kind yeah. of, but I mean, yeah, just watching your thoughts. Um, I definitely was so surprised, you know, as a normal, normal, good college student uh, mm -hmm. at the age of 20, when I did my first Vipassana 10 day silent meditation retreat, meditating. 10 hours a day. I just never sat down with myself and just tried to focus on one object, the breath or, you know, scanning the mm -hmm. body and was just amazed by just how out of control my mind was, the range of things I was thinking about, the total dissociative clang type thinking where associating one thing to the next. And yeah, I mean, they didn't, you know, if someone were to track all those thoughts, it wouldn't, you know, write them down. It wouldn't be the the linear thought progression of a sane mm -hmm. person. So, so yeah, I mean, wasn't saying I was clinically insane, but what do you think about that? I mean, that, that most people, if you were to record their inner diary, their inner speech might seem um, further on this spectrum of, um, uh, yeah, mentally unhealthy or, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, something I've kind of joked about before is that, uh, uh, you know, you don't get in trouble for having delusions. You just get in trouble for having different delusions than everybody else has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, I do think really um, focusing on what is really going through your mind and letting go of it does give you, you know, you kind of can't hold on to the same delusions everybody else around you has. And uh, they think you are insane. <laughs> so what would you recommend for a meditator or a monk who does start seeing things that other people don't see? Um, where, where's the line? when you think that that person should maybe start um, seeking help. And this is somewhat confounded. And this is, you know, it, it is my belief. And I met people who, um, yeah, have capacities of the mind, which are just um, unusual that most people yeah. don't have. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't totally put it outside the, the realm of possibility that there are, you know, psychic phenomenon that someone could see things which even though other people don't see them actually are there. So I do believe in other realms, you know, of existence and there's reports both, you know, in the canon and elsewhere that of people seeing ghosts. So this is something, how does one, how, what do you think about all that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, 
Uh, of course, um, I'm more into the rationalist tradition, mm-hmm. but um, I do think that, you know, it's something I've thought of about a lot is the, uh, you know, the difference between being psychotic and being psychic. And mm-hmm. again, psychic has all these bizarre like connotations that go with it. But when people, I think, are having a, a uh, a real spiritual experience, it feels good, whereas if people are really psychotic, it feels bad. Hmm. And again, in terms of hearing things, that a lot of, I think most people from time to time kind of hear things, but mostly experience it as a voice inside their head. And often is saying just a few things at a time, whereas somebody's really psychotic, it's like a clear voice outside your head talking on and on about everything you're doing. And so I think that's different than what you've experienced, or is it? Yeah, I mean, just to say, I haven't really had these type of psychic experiences of mm-hmm. seeing other realms, other beings, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. angels or whatnot. But um, no, what you say about the difference between psychic and psychosis um, of being the affect, the positive, the result, you know, is it, is it leading to feeling good or feeling bad? I mean, yeah. that's a really important thing to be, be tracking. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and just to say how it can change, I mean, I've got a, a very good um, practitioner friend who was doing a lot of meditation, many, many hours every day, actually staying in a meditation center, practice center, and then starts to hear the teacher of this place uh, give him instructions yeah. when that teacher was in a different room. Mm-hmm. This goes on and he thinks, oh, this is great. You know, I'm just picking up psychically and he's giving me mm-hmm. good advice. He's telling me to meditate more and it's all going well. But then the voices started changing and he, yeah. things started going downhill, pushing him too yeah. far. He started sleeping less than he needed and or less than was, was healthy. And um, so yeah, think these things can can change from possibly possibly psychic to psychosis and um yeah yeah and hearing voices is not always a bad thing Uh, a few years ago i had a patient who had murdered someone Hmm. and i took him on as a project and you know he would be talking on and on, but you know, every time I saw him sooner or later, he'd get on to or something along those lines. And so whenever he would do that, um, you know, I'd say, well, well, let's step back a minute. Might there be another way to deal with that? And I wasn't sure whether I was really making much progress until he said, that one day can you know i was about to cold cock somebody but then i heard you talking to me isn't there another way to do this nice no that's i mean that's really exactly training this executive function is really a lot about of what meditation is dhamma you know having a meta cognition m-e-t-a hopefully yeah. with meta the two t's um which can really just watch what you're thinking and say okay mm-hmm. you know Ajahn Chah gives this simile of like a, a bull. You know, if a bull is going this way, you just tap it on the left side. And then if it's going too far this way, you tap it on the right side. And having a, an inner Dr. Hillard that can tell you, yeah, maybe you shouldn't 
cold cock the guy is a, a good thing to develop, I think. Uh, yeah, although I must say probably having an inner like Kofi is more uh, good than having an inner Dr. Hillard. No, we should we should have both the inner committee. It'd be great. Well, let's let's go to some questions um, and comments. So the first question, or it's a comment from Ajahn Nisabo. So he says, hello, Ajahn and all. It's great to meet you, Randy. Thank you for giving us such an amazing monk son. That's from Ajahn Nisabo, who his parents, they call me their monk-in-law. So you can consider Ajahn Oh, that's good. And of course, you know, what my uh, granddaughter calls you is her monkle. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, a lot of appreciation here. Um, and... Okay, and this is just a, uh, from one of our regulars. Mary, congratulations on your survival after stomach cancer. How did you use your mind to help in your healing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, initially, uh, I was uh, planning just, uh, you know, the uh, treatments had so many side effects and they were so ineffective. I initially thought that, uh, okay, great. I'll just go ahead and have as much fun as possible for about six months and then die. And uh, the, uh, there was a new treatment that came out. Uh, Herceptin, originally a breast cancer drug, was approved for stomach cancer just a few uh, weeks before I was diagnosed. I'm still getting it every three weeks. Uh, my original prognosis was maybe six to nine months. And uh, keeping the faith that it was possible against the odds that I would survive, that really uh, helped me stay with the treatment. And uh, I would say it's more, you know, the effect, I don't know, and the way I feel kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, like you're supposed to have these major insights when you have cancer. And uh, I did have some of those that I, one was I realized I'd spent most of my life as a mindless uh, careerist robot. <laughs> And uh, anyway, it did help me get in touch with, well, okay, that didn't really matter all that much. Hmm. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, oh, I've noticed that, you know, now it's been 10 years, I've kind of drifted back to uh, roboticism to some extent. And uh, anyway, uh, really and truly, to the small extent that I actually do meditation, uh, that does help bring me back to, you know, okay, that was a real illusion that I was uh, uh, chasing. Hmm. Kind of like Angry Birds, which as you know, I've been addicted to for quite some time, <laughs> that it is, uh, you know, uh, you are spending real time, and if you were really sucked into it, real money, um, pursuing imaginary rewards. And I realized that a lot of my climbing and climbing my way up the career ladder was kind of like playing Angry Birds. Well, well I'm hopeful you're going to be retiring um, soon. So I'm hoping that you'll fill a lot of that time with uh, meditation and spiritual reading as opposed to 
Angry Birds? Well, I am planning to do that. Although recent, I don't know if I told you about this yet. I decided rather than completely retiring, I would just, you know, cut down my hours, which is kind of nice because I'm keeping all the patients I like and I'm referring the patients I don't like to other people. Mm. I know we're not supposed to have patients we like and ones we don't like, but everybody does. Mm. Well, let's get some more questions. We got a lot here. Um, oh, here's one. Okay. Why are there so many narcissists and what's the best thing adult children of narcissists can do to heal? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. And are there more narcissists than there used to be? Uh, I don't know, but it certainly is uh, kind of an epidemic uh, these days, because so much of uh, love is contingent. And I think I even did that to you to some extent yeah. that, you know, I got to do well in school, got to defeat the competition. We <laughs> won't even go with the cartoon that you did about my uh, suggestions before soccer games. And, you know, I think when parents focus too much on uh, achievement and less on uh, virtue that can leave you feeling, uh, you know, being narcissistic. And uh, so, what? How do you heal from that? Uh, I think mindfulness works better than anything else I've come across. And mm. so. Uh, like it was something I say to patients sometimes is yes, well, like everything else I say, it's easier said than done. Hmm. Gosh, we've got a lot of questions. Um, Ooh, good. Here's one. So, um, Tahu, do you have a regular meditation practice or do you still plan on almost meditating? This is a reference to this cartoon. I'll call <laughs> you up and I say, happy birthday, dad. Do you have any meditation goals for this new year? And uh, can you see your response? Uh, yeah, I'll plan to almost meditate on Monday. I'll plan to almost meditate on Tuesday and plan to almost. And then look at how like Kobe is looking there. That's right. um, I'm doing a little better that sometimes I actually do meditate. And uh, this I have no stock in this company, but uh, the waking up series that Kofi originally recommended to me has been helpful uh, when I do it. Mm. And it is, I don't know, it's a couple of times a week usually. So I don't know. I, I think I'm doing slightly better than almost meditate. <laughs> well, let's do a lightning round because we've got a couple of, and I mean, some of these are deep questions, so it'll be difficult, but. Uh, we need meaning in life to be happy, I guess. Is there an inherent meaning in life or do we have to find our own meaning that is individual to our circumstances as the existentialists seem to say? Yeah, that's how I've always thought about it. Um, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of inherent, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I don't usually think in that way, but I mean, you can give meaning life and certainly, I mean, you can't, one of the reasons that Buddhism appeals to me is just, you can't deny suffering. It's the first noble truth and yeah. no one can. And that's a universal, you know, just figuring out a way to not suffer. And it's not easy actually, uh, just to not suffer. 
So. So everything you say also is easier said than done. Yeah, totally, totally. All right, um, Dr. Hillard, um, this is about psilocybin. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to answer this publicly, but what's your opinion oh, about psilocybin? Oh, oh sure, I don't care. I actually yeah. wrote up in my blog about when I like started using medical marijuana. Yeah. Uh, I have used psilocybin on a number of occasions. It's been a long time since I used LSD. And uh, that actually uh, psychotropic, uh, you know, uh, medita medication like uh, psilocybin LSD is having a moment in psychiatry. The place I really became uh, a convert, I suppose, I had a friend who was, I've had a lot of stomach cancer friends, and one of them was a young woman, uh, had these wonderful children, I even visited her at her home one time. And she said that having like psilocybin treatment helped her overcome her fear of death. Hmm. And so I do think there is, uh, you know, there's some real potential in this. It is something too, though, that if you already have kind of a tenuous grip on reality, it, you know, can mess you up. Well, I think that might be all the time we have. Um, oh, no, I was having fun. <laughs> we do. Um, we will be going over to Zoom. So that's another chance for people. Um, I just put the link in the in the notes or in the um, the chat, so people can check out there. And uh, yeah, Dad, you'll be over there, won't you? Okay, yeah. If I can figure out how to do it, yeah. Uh, was I appropriate? Um, I think so. I mean, I might have to go back and uh, bleep out that a bomb that you dropped. But uh... oh God, I don't <laughs> even remember that. At least no, I. At least I skipped some of the other words that I tend to overuse inappropriately. <laughs> Dad, thank you, Dr. Hiller. Thank you very much for, for joining. And um, we would love it. I'd love it if you could meet uh, many of these people in person and uh, for them to meet you um, at some point in Seattle. So Brilliant. Okay. I will definitely figure out a good reason to be there. Now, if I can figure out a good way to get on to Zoom. <laughs> I am we'll a baby boomer. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Deb. We'll close up and go over to Zoom. See everybody over there. Bye-bye. Bye-bye for now.